Let me read to you again verse 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation. That phrase set forward might be God purposed as a propitiation. And it, it kind of fits with the last stanza we sang in the last hymn that we just sang. Where it says, His grace has planned it all, his mind but to believe. God purposed it. God set it forth. It, probably more likely that it is God set forth. That God put this forth in a public way. And it's speaking of the cross of Jesus Christ. That God made very public. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. I'm not asking you to do that, but if you do, you'll see that there you have a declaration of the creative handiwork of God in which he created all things and he made everything. And as you read it, what you come away clearly understanding is that God made everything by fiat. That is, God just spoke and it was. And so you'll read as you're going through it, God said, God said, God said, God said. Each day God made a declaration, God spoke, and those things that came into being came into being by His spoken words. A demonstration of His absolute power, His creative power over all things and over all creation. Now we're coming to a different situation altogether. We're coming to God's work or how God brought about our salvation. How it was that God took individuals who had sinned against Him had been cast under the cloud of their own unrighteousness and how God made them righteous, righteous so that they were fit to come back into God's presence and dwell in God's presence. That is, by the way, the problem of salvation that needed to be solved. How could sinful, unrighteous individuals like us ever be restored in, into the presence of the righteous, holy God? That was the problem that he solved in our salvation. God worked it out in such a way that he might be able to declare us righteous that he could cover us by our faith in Jesus Christ with his own perfect righteousness so that we could be fit to be with him now and be with him forever. And that's what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Now the question is, how did God accomplish that? Did he accomplish that in the same way that he created all things? Did God just by fiat say, be justified, be righteous, and we were justified and righteous? Interestingly enough, the challenge or the problem of our sin was far greater in God's mind than the challenge of creation. And in this case, God couldn't and God didn't just say something. God had to engage in a work that took place, a work that would satisfy His own justice and change our corrupt and sinful natures. And so it wasn't established by fiat. It wasn't that God spoke. Our salvation demanded something more from God. It called for a work, a mysterious and terrible work that we identify in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 24, and you'll see in the very first part of verse 24 that our salvation is declared. The nature or the very essence of the problem that was solved in making us righteous. It says we were justified freely by His grace. That is, there is... Problem solved. We were made righteous by the grace that came through God and through our faith in Jesus Christ. And this justification not only brought forgiveness of all of our sins, this justification not only took away all of the writing of all the sentence of all the evil that we had done and wiped the slate clean, but this salvation then wrote down upon our lives all of the goodness, all of the righteousness, all the perfections of Jesus Christ. So that when God looks at us, He sees us not with our sins, not with the writing of our past history of sins,
but he sees written all over us the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we could come into his presence. That's salvation. That's what God has accomplished for us. That's what's declared in that short little phrase, being justified freely by the grace that is in God. But now, if you look at the last half of that verse, or the first half of verse 25, you'll see what it was that God had to accomplish or do in order to bring that salvation to us. There was a problem that he had to solve on our part. There was something that needed to take place on our part because of our sin. You'll see that addressed in verse 24b. And then there's something that God had to address on his part, something that had to be satisfied on God's part in order that he might bring to us this salvation. And so we need to look at this. This is the saving work of God addresses two parties, man and his sin, God and his righteousness, God and his holiness, God and his complete justice with two different needs. Man must have his sin addressed. God must have his justice satisfied, his holiness satisfied. And these two things must take place in order for us to be justified freely by the grace of God. So the salvation that God brings to us is free. It pours out from His grace. But as we read and understand, it's costly. It costs something of God in order to accomplish that salvation for us. The first thing was man's need in salvation had to be addressed. And that was addressed in the redeeming work of the cross. It says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We spoke about this last week. Our sins and through our sins and by our sins, we have sold ourselves in slavery to sin. Into that slavery, we've also been bound by the tempter who led us into that sin. We live bound under his domain and his dominion and under the domain and dominion of sin. And as a result, we are simply being held in sin until we experience or reap the full consequences of our sin, which is death. We gave some different examples of that. It's like the slave that was chained in the belly of a boat and was simply used as an oarsman to transport the vessels of some foe around the Mediterranean Sea as he engaged in battle and warfare. And there he was chained and there he was fed and there he slept. He never left that place until eventually that ship lost one of its battles. It sunk into the water and he sunk down with it. There it is. There's a picture of us and Christ has come and redeemed us out of that slavery by taking our place and setting us free, redeeming us by his own life, through his own precious blood. He's redeemed us. We're told that in First Peter. We gave a different illustration. It would be like being in a foxhole in a war, and all of a sudden a grenade falls into the foxhole, and there's a number of you there, and one of the soldiers falls upon that grenade and takes the complete blow of it. And in a sense, he's bought your life for you. He's redeemed you in that moment. So Christ has, in a sense fallen upon and taken all the shrapnel of our sin upon himself and given his life in order that we might go on living and be free. And, and yet, if we're an individual who simply gave his life for us, the very next day we might be afraid that another grenade might be thrown up in the next foxhole that we're in, in the next situation. But in Christ, he rose from the grave and he not only redeemed us from our sins and gave us this new life, but then he drew us up into his eternal and everlasting life so that we might have, in this passage it says, we have redemption in Christ. We live in Him and we abide in Him and He sustains us and He holds us and He keeps us in what He accomplished for us and paying and bearing our sins in our place. And so in the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes that Christ is made unto us redemption. It's Christ Himself and being in Him that brings to us this great and wonderful redemption. 
And it's wonderful. And it provides for this great need of us that our sins and the damage of our sins and the destruction and the death that our sins cause and set in motion our life and the slavery and bondage that our sin brings to us, that we might be released from all of that. And, and God accomplished that by sending Jesus Christ to be our Redeemer. But then there's a need on God's part that we're going to talk about this morning. God's need in order to bring sinful people into his salvation. And what God needs is, and it sounds odd to speak of God in this way, but God needs to be propitiated. His justice against sin, his wrath against sin, his hatred for sin must be answered and addressed. That's the idea here. To propitiate means essentially to placate or appease the anger or animosity of an individual. Now we're going to talk about this over next week as well because we're going to look at some other interpretations or translations of what it means here to propitiate. But here is the basic idea, and this is the idea that the authors of the authorized version of Scripture, the King James, gave us and understood, and you'll find this in other translations as well. It's this idea. It's taken from a Greek word, halasterion, which means basically to propitiate. There are many people that don't like this idea. They don't like this idea or this connotation being applied to God, they don't like it for a number of reasons. One, they think that it's not reflective of the God that's revealed to us in the New Testament. This God is an enlightened God, and He's a God of love, and He's not a God of scorn, He's not a God of revenge, and He's not a God of anger, and therefore He doesn't need to be placated. They don't like it because they don't think it's a New Testament idea or a biblical idea. Second, they don't like it because it sounds to them quite primitive, some tit-for-tat civilization that existed at different times in the history of the world, but we're more modern, and we have evolved beyond those things, and we're not individuals who go out seeking to take revenge. So it's a reflection of a primitive mindset that doesn't exist in modern, enlightened minds of our day and age, and they find it quite offensive, and it's the kind of notion that might trigger a person to think that God is angry, and that God somehow needs to be placated in his anger, and this they identify as something that's inappropriate. And, and again, they're against it because they think that the very idea applies to the image of some angry, tribal, pagan god who has to be placated with sacrifices of others in order to release his blessings because he woke up in a foul mood one day and he demanded some kind of satisfaction from the people in order that he might release his blessings upon them and avert the curses that he set upon their land or the challenge that they're facing on their land. And the fact is that you can go into different civilizations and go into different cultures, and that's exactly how their gods behave. We have a pastor that we work with, and you've heard me speak about Moses Undru on a number of occasions. Moses is not the first person who came to Christ, I should say, in his family. It was his mother, and then it was his father. His father's name is Mohan. He was pledged to be married to Moses' mother. It had been arranged many years prior to that when they were young children. Her family moved and went to Myanmar for a short period of time. And while they were in Myanmar, they converted from Hinduism to Christianity. And they came back as a Christian family, but the wedding was still on. And so he married this gal who was now claiming to be a Christian girl. He knew nothing about it. Not only that, she had such a rudimentary faith, she had no way to explain it to him. She couldn't explain Christianity to him at all. But she could pray for him. And so he would hear her praying to her God, and she would be praying, Oh God, save my husband. Oh God, be merciful and save my husband. What does that mean? What did it mean that this God, and how would that God save him? He didn't know. He didn't understand. In the village where they lived and where Mohan grew up, and now where he has a church and a ministry, and where Moses now serves as well, in the village of Megatopali at that time, 
there was a dominant god who ruled that city by the name of Polarama. And every time that there was a deprivation upon the land or any time, well, it actually was kind of capricious, but at various times, the priestess who represented Polarama would go through the village and cry out to all the neighbors, Polarama demands blood. Polarama wants blood. And on those occasions, it would decide what type of sacrifice Polarama wanted, whether it was a chicken or a bird or whether it was a goat or whether it was a, a cow, and they would bring it to the place where Polarama was supposed to be residing, which was this large banyan tree. And there underneath this banyan tree that Polarama resided in, they would sacrifice an animal and pour out the blood upon the roots of that tree because Polarama demands blood. And it was the only way that they would avert whatever tensions or whatever trial or whatever terrible thing was coming upon them or had come upon them was to feed blood to this angry god, Polarama. Now that's, that's the type of idea and the type of thing that individuals instinctively resist when you think of the idea of God wanting to be propitiated or placated. God Yahweh demanding blood in order that he might remove his curse or his blessing or, or might, that he might be favorably disposed towards others. So let's for a moment go through these different protests that I've just given to you and let's try to give an answer from a scriptural perspective. The first protest is that we don't really agree with this idea that God needs to be propitiated because it, it doesn't accord with New Testament teaching. That God is a God of love and this is a, a wrong understanding of what God is like. The God of the New Testament doesn't have this kind of anger or animosity. This is a pagan idea, not a Christian one. So the question is asked, is the New Testament God a God of wrath and indignation and destruction? Is he really? And the answer from Paul himself appears to be, this might shock you, yes, he is. We have to read these things in context. We have to read Scripture according to the context of Scripture, not according to what we think is our enlightened state at any given moment in time. And remember that Paul began this presentation in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And there he began by saying, the wrath of God is revealed against all manner of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then in Romans 2, 5, he said that, but in accordance with your hard hearts or the hardness of your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's not only that God's wrath is now being revealed and people experience the consequences of their sin, which some might accept, well, then wrath of God is just the natural consequences that I experience because of the things I do, and it's just somehow some karmic backlash, and I'll accept that idea. But then Paul goes on to explain, no, no, you're actually storing up wrath for a day of wrath at the judgment of God. And he's going to be the one bringing specifically this judgment upon you. And then in Romans 3, 5, if this doesn't under, you don't understand this, Paul refers to God as the God who, quote, inflicts wrath. The God who inflicts wrath, he brings it. Now, when you consider the context and then the indictment that Paul is bringing, declaring that human beings are unrighteous and that they're all guilty before God, that there's nothing they can do to remove their sin and the, the judgment that's set upon their sin, then when you come to this passage, you almost feel as though there is a divine sword of justice raised over you about ready to prosecute you under that judgment. And that's somewhat of the context in which we come to this passage. And then you can read the whole context of the New Testament. It's not that God is demonstrating that he's against or that he has wrath or anger towards sin just in Paul's letter to the Romans. 
You'll see it throughout the writings of Paul. And then you'll see it in the writings of John. And you'll see it in the writings of Peter. And well, let's just go back to the Gospels and read almost any parable that the Lord Jesus wrote. And every one of those parables ends with a warning of judgment, significant and horrific judgment that God is going to bring upon those that don't repent and turn to him. And so Jesus will end his parable by referring to places where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and individuals who will be cast out into the fire or cast out into outer darkness. We have to see these things. We have to recognize these things. And then you can go to the very last book in the New Testament, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And again, you can read the accounts of the wrath and the justice and the judgment that comes upon human beings who are on the earth in the last day. And this can't just be swept aside because you find it uncomfortable to think of God as angry or indignant against sin and against evil. In fact, it's not even counter to the notion of love. If you have a little child that you love and you take her out in your front yard and you lay her out on a blanket while you're trimming the hedges and all of a sudden some strange dog comes rushing the yard with its teeth bared and it's ready to pounce upon your child, right? You don't respond in tenderness and gentleness. You immediately, instinctively, a rage comes flying up through you as you address that terrible beast that's coming down upon your child. And just pointing out to you that the idea of anger and animosity is not antithetical to the idea of love. In fact, C.S. Lewis said that anger is the fluid that love bleeds when you cut it. So, this is a New Testament idea. It's not foreign in the Old Testament. It's not foreign in the New Testament. Same God throughout. Here's a second idea, and it's this idea of propitiating anger or placating anger is a primitive notion that it's something for a past age. All I can say is by my own experience and observation, this is not true. Individuals, human beings, still desire and have impulses that need to be placated or propitiated. Immediately when I think of this illustration, I think of when I was a young boy, and I had found a buggy whip in the barn, and I determined that I would see how good I could snap it and how I could snap certain things. And then also, it's kind of fun to see how close you could come to certain objects and snap in front of those objects. And then the thought was, well, why don't I see how close I can come to my little sister and snap it? Maybe I can make her dance by snapping the buggy whip. And do you remember this? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not trying to hit her with a buggy whip. I'm just trying to see how close I can get to her without hitting her. You understand that. See, it was, my heart was in the right place. It was just I wanted to bring some excitement into her life, and I found this exciting myself. And... Well, I came too close, and I smacked her rather hardly, and at that point in time, she's crying, and then she's going to tell my father, which means that I'm in a lot of trouble. And so at this point in time, I changed my strategy, and the whole strategy is to placate her. It's to propitiate her. I start taking the whip and trying to, as much as I can, get it to spank myself. I'm trying to hit myself with the whip. I'm self-flagellating myself. Does not placate her. Does not propitiate her one bit. She gets my father. My father takes me. My father begins to, this is kind of an old-fashioned notion. You might not have heard of it before, but it's called a spanking. And so <laughs> he begins to spank me. And by the time the second blow is taking place, my sister now is begging my father not to spank me. Apparently, one blow from my father was enough to propitiate her. You see, she was placated after one blow and she's propitiated 
and she wants my father now to withhold his hand because she's satisfied that her desire and impulse for justice had been meted out. There's a story that I wrote in the book Pathway to the Soul, Reaching People by Spirit-Led Dialogue. In the story, it's the account of the execution of Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was the architect of the Nazis' final solution. He had planned out and he laid out the plan that provided the genocide for over six million Jews. Once he was judged guilty, he was hung in a place that was developed in Israel. He was, he was uh, tried in Israel. And then he was executed. And after he was executed, his body was cremated by a crematorium that they built just for him on that spot. And they cremated him. Then they took the remains, and the remains were placed into a two-liter milk jar, and it didn't even fill it halfway. So these are the remains of this man who had just been killed. And then the high court had ruled that none of his remains were to be put upon the land of Israel because it would defile them. So they had to take his remains out beyond like 18 miles out beyond the boundaries of Israel and it would be put out into the Mediterranean Sea outside of Israel. One of the individuals who had interrogated Eichmann during the time before he was put to trial was also an individual who was a part of overseeing or watching, I should say, and being a witness to his execution and the cremation of his body and a witness to the disposal of his ashes out in the middle of the sea. This gentleman's name was Goldman. His last name was Goldman. He had actually been in Auschwitz himself. And he had actually had family members that were killed and put to death under the final solution that Eichmann had developed. As he was holding this milk liter jar that was halfway full with his ashes, he recalls when he was in Auschwitz during the wintertime that he and a few men were taken by the SS and they were brought to a mountain of ash and they were required to shovel that ash into wheelbarrows and then take those ashes and scatter them on the pathways around the camp so that the SS wouldn't slip as they were walking about. And he began to think to himself, what is, what is one small jar of ashes compared to a mountain of ash? How many bodies and how many individuals were martyred or killed and were burned to create the ashes in that mountain compared to this one jar of ashes that he held in his hand? So anyhow, they took him out, they dropped the ashes out in the water, they came back, and as they were coming back, this overwhelming sense that the justice they had provided was thoroughly insufficient for the crime that had been committed came over them all. You'd think maybe they'd been satisfied that justice had been served and answered, that in a sense the demands of that crime had been propitiated or met, and yet they didn't feel that way at all. In fact, when he was asked whether he thought that he had now satisfied himself with what had taken place, Goldman responded, I didn't feel anything, no feelings of revenge, because there was no revenge. No human can avenge what they did, only God can. One person had been hanged compared to all the others, compared to my family, compared to my 10-year-old sister who was murdered at Belsic together with my parents. I didn't feel a thing. I felt like I was seeing something that I wasn't a part of. And again, he was asked, or did you feel that justice was served? And his answer was this. Justice was served to one murderer, a formal justice. He can't be hanged more than once, but that is not the absolute justice. Justice was not served in comparison to what was done to us. This is why I say that I don't know what revenge is, but only a supernatural power 
could properly avenge these people for what they had done, a power which I call God. Now, these are fairly modern accounts. This is a fairly modern account of an individual who recognizes that this sin has, in a sense, not been answered. It's not been fully propitiated. It's not been fully placated because of the crime that was committed. And, and his only hope is to rest that there's a God of justice who exact a complete and ultimate justice upon these things. So propitiation, just to say this, is not a primitive idea. It's not some far-off idea located some far-off past, but it's a, a current matter that grasps individuals who understand the gaping holes of injustice that form throughout the world and maybe form in their own lives. Now here's the third thing. We can speak to this idea that this is a pagan notion of appeasing an angry and tribal God by sacrifice. Let me just say this first. Satan is a liar, and Satan is also a forger. He forges poor copies of truth and twists them into deceptive traps in which he entraps people. He's not an original thinker. He only distorts what God has set forward in his wisdom, and the distortions can be awful and ugly renditions of ideas that originated with God himself. And that's what evil is. Evil is good or truth twisted to make a lie in an untruth and to make something that is positively evil. And, and yet behind those twisted things and those twisted concepts, there is a pattern of truth that still can be discerned. And it's that pattern of truth that gives us a key to speaking to even pagan minds. Pagan minds that bring blood, you might say, for example, to be poured out to Polarama, right? And can appease the god Polarama. In that odd and twisted feature and event, there's an opportunity to, in contrast, explain or give expression to the mind of what God has done and what God has provided and how God has answered this deep conflict in the human heart where people know they're sinners and they know they're not righteous and they know they're accountable and there must be judgment for the wrong they've done and some, some God sweeps in who shows power over their community and demands some answer so that he would be in a better mood. And Well, in that outline, there's something, there's some form, there's some avenue to speak to them, what God has provided. John Stott in his work on the book of Romans and also in a wonderful book on the cross of Jesus Christ has given an answer and he's differentiated this propitiation that takes place before our, our God and those pagan notions that we've just talked about. There are three points he makes and the first one is this. First he says, see that propitiation is necessary. We must see that it is necessary and we must understand why. The pagan believes that propitiation is necessary because the gods are ill-tempered in a bad mood, and periodically they act in fits of rage. But the Christian says, no, no, not true. God is holy. God is righteous. God is a God of love. And his anger falls on what is unholy and unrighteous and unloving. And there's nothing unprincipled or nothing unpredictable or nothing uncontrolled about God's anger. It is aroused by evil alone. God's wrath does not fall indiscriminately. It falls upon those things that transgress against His will and His purposes because His will and His purposes are designed to bring His loving influence and effect on our lives. The Lord Jesus 
went in the temple two different occasions, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, at the end of his earthly ministry. He found that there were money changers who had taken over the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles were to be received and be a part of the worship of the nation of Israel and to come before the God of Israel to make their prayers known and to bring their sacrifices. And there in this court of the Gentiles, they'd set up a marketplace in which they could sell and barter with people and they could basically manipulate people and their desires to be right with God in order to enrich themselves. And the Lord Jesus was indignant about this. They had made the house of prayer that was his father's house of prayer and they turned it in, Jesus said, into a den of thieves and robbers. I imagine he was becoming more and more indignant as he did it. He was putting together a whip and he's constructing a whip. And then after he constructed the whip, he went out among where they were selling their wares and he was flipping over tables. Coins were flying everywhere. His lash of the whip was falling upon these individuals who were trying to enrich themselves on the instinct and desires of people to be right with God. What I would suggest to you was that in all that the Lord Jesus did, not one coin that flew from a table struck an innocent bystander who had just come to bring a sacrifice before God. Not one lash of the whip fell upon an individual who just humbly was coming because he wanted to come into the presence of God and be right with God. God's anger, God's outpouring of animosity is towards evil. That must be turned aside. That must be placated. That must be answered. Here's a second thing we need to see here. It's who it is that does the propitiating? Who it is that authors the response that satisfies wrath? In the pagan mind, the person has to do the acting. They have to bring the sacrifice. They have to offer it up and pour out its blood. They must pay the cost and give whatever bribe is necessary or demanded by the angry God. But the Christian says, there's nothing that you can do to turn away the wrath and anger of God and of yourself. There's nothing that you can do to quiet his anger, his just anger against sin. But God loves the very ones whose sins he hates. I could add that God hates us as sinners, but he loves us as creatures made in his image, made to know him, made to be with him, made to glorify him and enjoy him. He hates us. He hates us as sinners. And yet in undeserved love, God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Done it because in his own holiness and because his own justice requires it and his love requires it. And these meet together so that God would provide himself as the propitiating and atoning sacrifice. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says this. In this is love. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now Jesus wasn't this innocent victim who unwillingly went at the Father's design, but this is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who before creating all things and knowing the sin that we fall in, determined that they themselves would give of themselves for our salvation and to satisfy God's own justice. If you look back upon our text, I want you to see this and not miss it, and I referred to it early on in the message, that God was the one acting in all of this. The very end of verse 24 says, Jesus, Christ Jesus, and now it describes him, whom God set forth as a propitiation. And that word there, set forth, can mean God proposed, but either way, it, it speaks of something that God has established, something that God has carried out. 
Jesus said this in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. You might take your Bibles and let's read that together. Jesus is speaking in John chapter 14, 17 of the same, in a sense, propitiating act in which God's judgment and wrath that should come upon sinful individuals comes upon and will come upon him instead. John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Here's Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, spiritual leader in all of Israel. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever or whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, we might read in other portions of Scripture, and we might think that sinful men crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's true, they did. But it was God who lifted him up. It was God who set him forth as a public example for all to see and for us. He takes upon himself God's own wrath against sin. God inflicts his righteous anger upon God to turn away that anger from us. Here's how Stott sums it up. The love... The idea, the purpose, the initiative, the action, and the gift were all God's. They were all God's. He brings the propitiation. He brings the thing that propitiates. The third thing is how was God propitiated? How was his wrath satisfied? The pagan says, we bribe the gods with what they crave. I've been on the island of Bali, and I've discovered on the island of Bali that they plates of food every morning and every night. And so they put out food every morning and every night on their door stoop. And not only that, apparently they like food to be a certain color. And so all the food, it doesn't matter what it is, is all dyed the same color. I don't know why that is, but that's what the gods want. And they want flowers as well to be served to them. And you'll see on the mountaintops around the island of Bali, there are beautiful fields where these beautiful flowers are raised. It's gorgeous, but they're raised in order to provide a flower. Every morning, they like a nice flower on their plate. Every morning and every evening. And that will placate the god. That will satisfy the god if they feed him in that manner. And and Megatopoli, the prophetess of the goddess Polarama, went about telling the people that Polarama says, give me blood, give me blood. That's what will placate him. That's what will satisfy him. Mohan tells the story of how it was that he became a Christian. He left the city of Megatopoli to go to a large city in another state in order to wait to see if he get a visa to go and work in Dubai. And that would be that he was the oldest son. It was the family's hope. It was his wife's hope that he would be able to provide for the rest of the family. And while he was in this other state, no one spoke the language that he spoke. And so he couldn't communicate on the streets at all. He was a stranger. He felt vulnerable. And it took some time for the visa to come through. In fact, it took a long time. There was only one book in the place where he was staying that was in his own language. And it was the Bible. So he had nothing else to do, and so he began reading the Bible. It was an opportunity for him to learn about this God that his wife worshipped. And so he read all the way through the Old Testament. And then after he came to the Old Testament, he entered into the New Testament. He began reading the Gospels. And as he came to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he saw that this one who had been sent sheds his blood for the forgiveness of sins. This shocked him and stunned him, and he thought maybe he had read it wrong, so he read the next Gospel the same thing. 
And then he read in the Gospel of John, and as he's reading through the Gospel of John and reading through it, he sees not only that this is the Son of God, but this is God come in the flesh. That God had revealed himself in the Son and come in the flesh, and it was God himself that was giving himself in sacrifice for the sins of those that were even crucifying him. And when he came to that point, this thought hit him like a sledgehammer. My God, my village God, cries out, give me blood, give me blood, give me blood. And the Christian God, the God who is the maker of heaven and earth and the creator of all things, gives us his blood for our sins and the sins that we have committed. And it overwhelmed him. And immediately his thought was, this is the God who made all things. This is the God who has given all things to me, and I have not worshipped him. Oh God, forgive me for worshipping any other God but you. You are the God I will worship. You are the God. And it dawned on him, my wife has been praying, save my husband. And this is what salvation is. It's coming under the blood that he shed for me and believing in him alone. And then he thought, well, let me see. My wife is in that village praying for me. And God is answering her prayer here in this city that I'm living in. And God, if you're here, then that means you're in Dubai as well. God, if you can answer prayer, I still need to provide for my family. Would you please get a visa and release me so I can go to Dubai? And the very next day, a paper arrives for him and he's free to go on to Dubai. And He goes on to Dubai and provides the income for his family to all be educated. And then when all his siblings are educated, they say, we want to provide for your education. Where do you want to go to school? And he says, well, I want to go to seminary. I want to go to a Bible college. I want to learn how to be a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what he did. And he went back to his village in Megatopoli. And one of the first people he led to Christ was the prophetess of Palarama. And the tree where Palarama resided was cut down, and that's where the church was started, in that village. That's what God does. That's how God answers our sin and our fallenness and brokenness. In paganism, humans work hard to placate angry gods with their actions. But in Christianity, God, with great love for us, drinks in on the cross his own holy indignation and righteous wrath against evil. Jesus, God's free and gracious gift to us, suffered the wrath of our sins, took the wage of our death, satisfied the righteous judgment of God by bearing its punishment. Thus, our last quote from John Stott, Stott wonderfully and ironically says this, God himself gave himself to save us from himself and to bring us into his love. How wonderful. What a provision. What a work, a mysterious work. Don't go too deeply into it. It's a mystery. Tis mystery all the immortal dies. Who can explain this strange design? Right? But we worship Him. And we bring glory to Him. Such a work is worthy of God who will not relent in His justice but did not relent in His love for us either. His love for the unjust who He saved through Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this will only make sense if we understand and we begin to appreciate 
the deep and profound gravity and awfulness and wretchedness of our sin and our moral and spiritual state in and of ourselves. It becomes all the more glorious when we realize the beauty and the glory and the wonder of your righteousness and your holiness manifest in your Son, Jesus Christ. And that he came as a lamb, dumb before his shearers and a sheep before his slaughters. He came as a lamb to suffer and die in our place. Oh God, to redeem us from our own bondage to sin, but also God to answer, perfectly answer and satisfy every instinct of divine justice and every holy response against evil and sin that you see in himself. Oh, my God is satisfied. I praise you. I praise you that I come before you. We come before you being satisfied with what Christ has done for us so that all is left for us is to receive the gracious outflow unabated outflow of your love and your goodness and your plenty upon us. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.